0: In the garage of Dr. Frank Conrad, on November 2nd, 1920, the first scheduled pre-advertised radio program in the United States went on the air. Station KDKA was broadcasting returns of the presidential race on the evening of Election Day. From a humble beginning in a Pittsburgh garage to the sumptuous studios of the national radio networks in New York, Chicago, and Hollywood, these are the years we refer to as the golden age of radio.
1: Here's the Manhattan miracle round that brings you the bright side of life, that whirls you in music to all the big night spots of New York town, to hear the top songs of the week sung so
2: clearly you can understand every word. and or sing your <laughs> on the air for Griffin's. Shine to shine, shine Tony Home Permanent presents...
3: This is Nora Drake.
0: Good evening. This is Dick Bertel. And with me once again to explore this golden era is the man with 2,000 hours of radio memories on tape, Mr. Ed Corcoran. Well, our program tonight, Ed, is originating from New York. As a matter of fact, it's originating in the office of uh, one of the greatest comedy writers of the industry, Goodman Ace.
4: And not only a great comedy writer, Dick, but a very great performer as well. Uh, For those of you who remember Easy Aces, I'm sure the name Goodman Ace is a household name. It certainly is. And, Mr. Race, I'd like to
0: find out a bit about your book. We're going to start talking about your book, first of all, tonight. I understand you did an interview recently in, in which the interviewer forgot to mention the book entirely. No, yeah,
5: I'm sorry. <laughs> that was okay
0: <laughs> with me, though. It didn't bother me <laughs> too much.
2: What, uh, what made you decide to
0: write the book, ladies and gentlemen? Easy well, easy.
6: I had been getting... Some, I write a column for the Saturday Review, and I, I keep getting letters, not, not too many, but a few letters every week, you know, saying where can I get uh, some uh, transcriptions or, of your old show, so I decided to uh, write a book of eight scripts, just put eight of our scripts into it, with a little recording at the start, sort of to get the old, the voices of the old program, and that's the way we've, uh, that's the way we've done it, I don't think it's, uh, it's going to be a bestseller, you know <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, uh, How did you select the eight scripts that are in the book? at random mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> i
7: <I'll> bet. <laughs> no,
6: we just started to read them and we found ourselves laughing. I hadn't read them in 20 years and the comedy, surprisingly, held up very well. We have few changes that you should make in it, I imagine. You don't get a made for $20 a week anymore, <laughs> as we did in the old book. But uh, most of it just held up pretty well. We were just sitting here laughing about, laughing at them. So we decided, just the, the eight seem to play the best so we just took them and put them in the script and we have a little uh, opening thing I did with Jane of sort of a forward she she was against having them sent out and made public I don't know what she was saving them for I guess the same thing she says about television she doesn't like to watch television she says I'm saving my eyesight she doesn't say what for <laughs> and she just says she's saving it that's all
0: perhaps we uh, we might trace the origin of ETA's. This goes back to, uh, I
6: guess, 1931, doesn't it? Well, it was earlier than that, 1930 in Kansas City, and then somebody uh, who had come to town from a Chicago advertising agency heard one one day when we were on there, and he came back, uh, he told me this later in a replay, he came back the next week and heard it in the third week, he thought he may have just heard one of them that was fairly good, and he called up and bought it, so we went to Chicago. Uh, I was working on a paper then, a mm-hmm. drama editor of the uh, Kansas City Post, <coughs> and uh, the money there was very small, and uh, this man uh, offered us some money that I'd never heard of before, and help helped me get out of debt, and it was a 13-week contract, so I got a 13-week leave of absence from the paper, and as they renewed each 13-week, I'd renew mine. 13-week absence. I had to write a column. I wrote a daily column in those days. I had to send that back free in order to ensure my job <laughs> being there when I got back. Things
0: changed
6: after that, didn't they? Yes, uh, it yeah, it's changed a little. We, we were there for a couple of years. And then uh, we came to New York. We had some kind of a thing with the sponsor there. One night he called up and said uh, that our some guy from Minneapolis, I've forgotten who it was. I think it was Lavoris or somebody. He called up and said we had gone on the air five minutes late that night. And I said, "No, we're up here at the W O R studio." I said, "Their clock says uh, nine o'clock," and he said, "I have a grandfather's clock and hasn't lost a minute in fifty years." You know, and that's what he went by. <laughs> and because we didn't go on the air right, I think that's why he decided to drop us because I didn't <laughs> agree with him. So we came to New York thinking, you know, we were doing so well, everybody would. Uh, pick us up, and we'd start making big money, you know, Jane was dreaming of this big money, too. And when we got here, that we found there wasn't any big crowd waiting for us as we came in. A lot of people said they liked the show, but no sponsors seemed to want it. And finally, the same advertising agency that handled us there had an office here, and he offered us a job. And it was, uh, for I think it was $100 less than we were getting in Chicago, but it was still a lot of money for those days. I think it was something like $1,500. We were getting $1,600 then, originally. And Jane says, no, I wouldn't go on for that. I said, no, I want you to say that slowly. I say, I wouldn't go on for $1,500 a week. She said it, and she started to laugh, and she saw <laughs> it. It was funny, and so we went on. Now they were going to put us on in the afternoon. And I said to Fred, uh, Alan, I said, do you think we ought to go on in the afternoon? He says, when you take the money to the bank, they don't ask you whether you (laughs) made it in the afternoon (laughs) or at night. That's all he cares about, too. You know. Well,
4: it seems that uh, when you were on, uh, weren't you on at seven and seven fifteen? We were
6: on at uh, different times. That was one of the times we were on. Quite longest, yes, that's right. And we had opposite us was uh, Amos. uh, It was a red network and a blue network then, NBC, you know. And then there was. uh, Columbia. We were on opposite Amos and Andy and Fred Waring. And in the ratings, I, I, we finished third among the three all the time. Luckily, I, that's one of the things that's uh, killing uh, killed radio and it's killing it now and it's also killing television, is rating system. You know, they, they go by ratings. They're not interested in writing anymore. You can write as good a script as you want if it doesn't get anything. I think a lot of people don't realize too that ratings were taken... Back in the
7: 30s? Is your
0: oh, yeah, it
6: was the Crosley then, then yes. it was the Hooper, and then it was something else, and now it's the Nielsen, and uh, I've always had uh, occasion to fight that, you know. I don't think, even when they agreed uh, with us, even when we, I was working with later in television for Burl, and we got the show up from 28th to 1st or 3rd or something like that, I, I wasn't too happy about it because... I kept thinking maybe we weren't doing too well. People, everybody began to like it, you know. I, I thought I'd like to think I was writing something a little special, you know. But so does you know. Jane ordinarily
0: come up with malaprops, <laughs> or was <laughs> that, well, was that uh, a she creation? Has of yeah. Well,
6: she. Uh, a lot of people have, and uh, she's used them so uh, so often on the air. It's become a sort of an occupational hazard with us. The malaprops that we did, we we like to have them say something besides just being. Uh, Maloprop.
5: Mrs. East.
3: Good morning. Oh, hello, Mrs. Norris. Long face, no
6: sea. Yes. Malaprop, uh differs from uh like a an name and San line They used to say eyes regusted. Well, there's no such word as regusted. Our words are words, you know, are really words.
3: Oh, I suppose you'll be happy if I don't have a fur coat and get pneumonia and have to spend the winter in an oxidol tent. <laughs>
6: Oh, like uh, where you're running through like a chicken with its hat off. That's a sort of a sight malaprop. Now, a uh, malaprop that means something is home wasn't built in a day. It would mean a little something of it. Or she used to say about Marge, her friends, we're insufferable friends, mm-hmm. which is uh, somebody everybody can identify with. You know?
0: Our guest tonight here on the Golden Age of Radio is Goodman Ace. And, Ed, we haven't heard a, a full detailed excerpt from the easy aces program as yet so let's do that right now the other night after a hard day at the advertising agency where i work i was sitting around reading the paper and jane was going over her shopping list for the next day
5: now
3: let me see if i've got everything down that i want to buy tomorrow toothbrush soap cleansing cream mink coat and lipstick (laughs) anything you need dear Mm. Dear, I'm talking to you.
0: Uh, yes, yes, it has been, hasn't it?
3: Dear, you're not listening. Put the paper away. Look at my shopping list and see if you want to add anything.
0: Okay, let me see. Toothbrush, soap, cleansing cream, mink coat, and lipstick. No, I don't think so. Unless you want to return those ginger ale bottles. We, uh, (laughs) we get a nickel back on each bottle. And every little bit will help. Mean coat? What's this mean <laughs> coat, dear?
3: Where? What's oh, the- yes, main coat. I meant to talk to you about that. You did? Uh, dear, make a lap. What? Uh, Make a lap. I want to sit down. Oh,
6: okay. I made a lap. But you're not going to get any... There, now.
3: Isn't this cozy? Oh, fine. Oh, look, dear. Your lap's getting a front porch here.
6: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and if you'll
0: look around and back, you'll find a veranda. (laughs) uh, Now, Jane, about this mink coat business... Oh, uh,
3: dear, I saw it again today. It's a dream. You know that first shop around the corner?
0: Uh, Just to say hello to...
3: Well, I've been passing it every day, and there's this dreamy mink coat in the window. The girl wearing it looks so smart. Of course, she's just a dummy, and so could I.
0: Uh, how much?
3: It's full length, and it'll cover all my dresses.
0: Oh, how much?
3: Oh, it's the softest mink. It's wild.
0: Who isn't? How much, Jack?
3: That's just it. You haven't heard the half of it. Well, how much? Two thousand dollars. $2,000,
0: that's pretty reasonable for a good mink coat, isn't it?
3: Now you've heard the half of it. Altogether, it's $4,000. Oh, no. What? Yep. Now, yet. dear, take it easy. Oh. Relapse. Remember your blood pleasure.
5: $4,000.
0: Now, look, Jane, let's be reasonable. Where am I going to get that kind of money?
3: I knew you were going to say that. I knew it. I knew
0: it. But, Jane, you know we can't afford to spend all that money.
3: Everybody gets some pleasure out of our money but me.
0: Who? What that? How pleasure? about
3: your sister's oldest boy when he had his tonsils out?
6: Oh, that was good. And
3: your brother's youngest girl when she... He had her adenoids yes, out. Yes, I know. You paid for all that. Everybody has a wonderful time on our money but me. Oh,
6: fine. Wonderful time they had. And
3: how about your mother's teeth? Who paid for that? Uh,
0: <laughs> let's leave my mother's teeth out of there, shall we?
3: Oh, when I mention your mother's teeth, they hurt. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Uh, look, uh, Jane, I'll tell you what I'm going to do.
3: Oh, I knew you would, Wait, Wait
0: a minute now. No, 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 stop. Listen to this. What? I've got a big advertising account coming up. Pretty good chance of getting it, too. It's for the Royal Paint Company. If I get it, there'll be a bonus in it for me, and then you can have the main coat. Oh,
5: thanks, Wait a minute now.
0: No, I said if I get the account. I have a 50% chance of getting it.
3: Oh, well, that's only the half of it, dear. You'll get it. And if I'm wrong, I'm not far from it.
6: <laughs> uh, you were on five nights a week. Well, we were on three nights and four nights, and finally, yeah, we were on uh, i don't know—we were on several times at different times uh, w- during those. Uh, I've forgotten how many. 18 years, I think.
0: Did you write the scripts alone, or? Yes,
6: that's right. Uh, how long then would t- it take you, let's say, to produce when you when you were on, let's say, a five-day-a-week basis? How long would it take you to produce a script? I used to write, uh, like if today were Monday, I would write next Monday's script today. Then go to the studio and do this Monday's script. And to produce it, well, we'd have about a 10-minute rehearsal, and then we'd hang around. You know, you had a, they gave you an hour, according to the union rules. You had an hour to rehearse, and everybody walked away. and Jane sat there marking, up her, marking her script. She wasn't an actress ever, you know. She was just a housewife, and... I would give her instructions, and she would write in the margins, sad, bad, past, happy, you know, things like that, and underline words so that she could get them. But after a while, she felt a little looser and was able to do things very well. She, she became pretty adept at it, you know, after a while. In addition to your own characters, how many other characters did you work in on a regular Oh, well, places? we had a lot of them. We had... Uh, a uh, girl, we we had a girl with a nice laugh. When we first came to Chicago, I knew that whenever Jane did a matter prop, it was, we wanted people to laugh, so this girl who was her friend would laugh, which would And we had no audience. Uh, to laugh, and there were no laugh tracks in those days either, thank goodness. That's another thing that's making uh, all the medium so bad is that no writer worries about whether a joke is going to get a laugh anymore. Mm-hmm. He exactly. knows it's going to get a laugh, and they don't worry about. It. We used to sit there for 45 minutes sometimes. Say, do you think this will work? This joke, you know, or maybe if we phrase it this way. You don't have to bother about that anymore. You know. But anyhow, she had a nice laugh, and she. Got, when we first came to Chicago, we went over to W O R. It was in the Drake Hotel then, and we told a man. Uh, beforehand that uh, we wanted some woman with a nice laugh. He said, I'll have them over here and you can take your pick, of any of them you like. And he had two ladies over there who whose laugh was forced and not gay or anything, and as we came down, I said, they're not, they're not very good, is that all you've got? And he said, well, that's all I've got now, and I heard this receptionist laughing at something, I said, now that girl's got to laugh, he says, take her.
5: <laughs> <laughs> I said,
6: is she an actress? He says, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> I said, that's good enough for me, and we hired her, and she was with us all the time. Who
4: was the uh, actress? And Mary
6: Hunter. Mary was Hunter. There now? Yes. And uh, she had never been an actress, and... Um, she had a lot of things going. She was marching in the unemployment parade in those days, and she was, uh, you know, she was for the downtrodden. Ladies and gentlemen, Easy Aces.
0: Once again, the strains of Manhattan Serenade introduce Easy Aces, radio's distinctive black novelty. Who decided on the theme song
6: for the show? I did. You did.
2: Was it always played on the accordion?
6: Well, that's very funny. You know, the first time we came to New York, and we did it for this outfit, uh, Blackett Sample and Hummer, which was the outfit that had 80 shows on the air at one time, really 80-something shows, all at once gone. And uh, after the first show, Mrs. Hummer, a very nice lady, and they were really creative people, Mr. and Mrs. Hummer. He's gone now, but she was wonderfully... Uh, Adapted, working out storylines with writers. She never bothered with me. Ours was the only show they left alone. We wrote them. And, uh, she heard the uh, first show and then she said uh, I think you oughtn't to have the organ on this because it's a lighter show. Have this man bring, he plays the accordion too, have him bring his accordion. So he came in the next day, and I said, she'd prefer having the accordion. He said, well, I didn't bring it. I said, well, start with it tomorrow. It's okay. He said, okay. So he used the organ that day, and they called up afterwards, and they said, sounded much better. (laughs) 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 And I just said, yes. Now, I never heard from him again after about, oh, eight years. One night I got a letter from him. (laughs) It said, uh, "I heard your show today, and it was one of the finest things on radio." And I wrote her a little note saying, "You caught us on one of our off nights. We're <laughs> not really that good." And <laughs> that's uh, never heard from them again. And that's unusual for Frank and Ann Hummer too, as yeah. I understand it. They used to be on top of everything. Well, they were, activity. but ours was one show. They didn't fool with. We had our own storylines, our own. They used to they used to make up a storyline with every writer, and then they got writers just to fill in the dialogue. They knew which way the show was going to go, and all that sort of thing. And it's, uh, it's a satisfactory way to work, and sometimes it wasn't that satisfactory because I'd go off on a, some storyline that wasn't going anywhere, you know. That's a problem you have, when you have when you're on four or five days a week. You start a storyline, and you've got to keep dragging it out, you know, but you've got to get some action in it. I even once asked Amos and Andy, they used to broadcast right next to us, I said, if you ever start a storyline that doesn't go anywhere, that's because I heard you say last week, uh, last Monday, you said, uh, we're going to have a one-cent sale, you know, to Andy. And then the next day, Andy was explaining it to the Lightning. And the Lightning says, what do you mean a one-cent sale? And Andy explained it to him. And then Kingfish came and said, boys, I understand you, you know. And they kept this up through Friday. Well, Monday, they never had the one sale. <laughs> and I asked him what happened. And he said, well, we just like, act, we, we forget it. That's all. I said, well, gee, I spent about 20 minutes explaining why the girl didn't marry this guy and why this happened and before I drop it. He said, no, we just act like it didn't happen. You know? <laughs> I guess you're better off. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> ¶¶
3: this. Gather around me, Mother. You too, dear.
6: Yes, sir. Clowning, uh... I
3: don't want any slip-ups. Are we ready?
6: Synchronize your watches.
3: Mother, when he gets here, you'll be sitting on the couch reading a book and smoking a cigarette with your legs crossed.
0: The neatest trick of the week.
3: <laughs> and Mother, pull yourself in. Look slim.
0: Jane, you're making it sound like the battle of the balls.
3: And as for you, dear.
0: Sir, could I have a furlough?
3: After that, Big Dinner, you just say. I'm
0: sorry, sir.
3: When he gets here, dear, you wait till you get a signal from me. Signal. And you'll go up to the corner cigar store and telephone this number cigar store. and ask for mother. For me, Janie? That's right, Mother. He's gonna act like another man's calling you. And he'll ask you for a date. Him? He's not my type.
0: I'm not your type. Now, Please, just a minute.
3: Mother, after all, in order to get a man these days, a girl's got to play hard to take.
0: And she is, yes.
3: <laughs> By the time we finish with this man tonight, Mother, you'll be going steady with him. Oh, Janie, the way I shake all the time. How can I go... Now,
0: steady? that is a problem, yes.
3: <laughs> so, when he goes up to the corner and calls you up, this man will think a lot of men are trying to take you out. But you're not a wallpaper, you see.
0: Wallpaper. Oh, there he is. This is it. Everybody into their foxholes. I'll let him in.
3: Okay, sit down, Mother. Take the book. Sit up straight. Chins up. That's it. Oh, Janie, you're making me so nervous.
6: Uh, how do you do, sir? Uh, how do you do? Mrs. Sherwood live here? That's right. Come in. Come in. I'm, uh,
0: I'm Mr. A. Uh, I'm Georgie Wilson. Georgie Wilson. Yes, uh, come in, son. I mean, uh, Mr. Wilson. Uh, may I take your coat? No, no. Try <clears> to <throat> keep it on for a few minutes so I get used to the temperature in here. <coughs> <coughs>
6: <laughs>
0: That's uh, quite a cough you have there, Mr. Wilson. You like it? Well. <laughs> Oh, you should have heard it yesterday. It was a pipperoon. <laughs> Came from way down here in my bronco tube. Oh! <laughs> but the doctor gave me some medicine, and all I got left now is a post drip. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, uh, come in, Mr. Drip. Uh, Mr. Wilson,
6: I, uh, want you to meet my wife. Uh, this is Mr. Wilson, James.
3: Oh, well, pleased to meet your acquaintance.
6: <laughs> how do you do?
3: And Mr. Wilson, you may think this is my sister, but she's really my mother. Oh, this is Mr. Wilson's mother. <laughs> how do you do, Mr. Wilson? Oh. Well, how do you do, Mrs. Sherwood?
0: Here I bring you a tin of chocolate.
3: Well, thank
0: you. Uh, not at all, not at all. You'll find they gentle and fast acting. <laughs>
2: Myself. Well,
3: well, well, my favorite brand. Uh, uh, won't you sit
0: down, Mr. Wilson, on this couch over here? No, no, thanks. I uh got to sit on a hard chair.
3: Sacroiliac, you know. Sacroiliac? Why, I've got that too. Oh, well, you two have a lot of common.
6: Yes, they have.
3: Oh, that ain't half of what I got. I got a blood pressure of 180. 180. At its lowest, mine's 190. i got neuritis in every one of my ten fingers. I've got neuritis in nine fingers, and in my tenth finger, I've got bursitis. <coughs> you hear that cough? How do you like that cough?
8: <coughs> it's fair. Fair? Comes from way down in my lungs.
3: Lungs? Who's got lungs? <laughs> i got a silver plate in my head. I've got service for six.
7: <laughs> Five years ago, I died.
0: <laughs> the program was, was it always 15 minutes in length, or did That's you at one time right. go to a half hour?
6: So had, later, at uh, last, before we went off the air, we put, uh, made an hour show out of it with an audience. First time we've ever had an audience. And they used to get a small audience over at CBS in their little building across the street. I think there were people that were, you know, trying to get in. They had some game shows over there, and they couldn't get in there, and so they ushered them into our place. It's true. And uh, they seemed to laugh. Uh, some of the records uh, we have, sh- you can hear them laughing. They had about 100, 150 people in this little room. Mm-hmm. Did you actually... Uh you used uh, card
4: games uh, when you first started out? Uh, yeah, bridge. we started <laughs>
6: playing bridge originally, and all our actual plots were around bridge, you know, because when we first started, uh, bridge was just coming into vogue. Culbertson, you know, Jane kept saying the cumbersome system. Right? <laughs> Ella cumbersome, she kept going. What is it that uh, makes a malaprop funny? I think it's delivery a lot. And you, ca- and you can't punch a malaprop. It's got to be thrown away as if you just accidentally say, uh, yeah. as if it's just something that just came to you accidentally. You know, it's like, uh, oh, uh, you know, we have room service that we li- where we live in the apartment hotel. And uh, she said if she had to, she could uh, get the meals. You know, she said I didn't take domestics. And she stopped because in the script we said I didn't take domestic silence for nothing, you know. <laughs> she we did it. She She's I can strangle eggs. I can, uh, you know, all the all the males were mixed in together then. I can make instant coffee in five or ten minutes. You know. And <laughs>
5: hey,
6: what was your famous tagline? Would you deliver that? I would always said, "Isn't that awful?" You know, <laughs> uh, something. Or I would, if she said uh, the one about uh, the Old Testament houses, and I said, "Holy Moses." You know, just throw it away, you know. You're listening to the Golden Age of Radio. This is Dick
0: Bertel. Along with me is the man with 2,000 hours of old-time radio programs on tape, Ed Corcoran. And our show is coming to you, recorded tonight from the office of Goodman Ace, well-known comedy writer and certainly one of the great radio stars appearing in Easy Aces. Well, Goody, didn't uh, Jack Benny
6: have something to do with your start as a
0: comedy writer?
6: Actually, the first joke I wrote, I was working on a newspaper in Kansas City at the time. I was a drama critic. I was about 18 or 19. And I got a wire from Jack, whom I had met in Kansas City because he was playing at the Orpheus Theater then, And from Baltimore, and he said he's going into the Palace Theater and he needed he's going to be the master of ceremonies. It was a new uh, format they had started then. And would I give him some jokes and he'd pay for them, you know? Well, I had never been to the Palace Theater, but I knew that the Master of Ceremonies always came on after the first act. And I looked in Variety, and I noticed that the first act was a magician named Long Tack Sam. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I never heard from Jack, you know. But then about uh, two weeks later, Winchell's column was in our town, and there was a line in there. And then Variety mentioned it, and then finally I got a letter from him. A, he says, enclose the check for $50, your joke's got a lot of laughs if you got any more sent them. And uh, I needed the money, but I just w- didn't want to lose my amateur standing. I wired it back, which cost a couple of dollars, and I said, your check got a lot of laughs if you have any more send them. <laughs> He's a guy that wants good material and appreciates it, you know, and can deliver it, which is more important, and won't argue with you about a good line, you know. But a lot of uh, actors, you know, their judgment is so... I always say that if Doris Day and Evelyn Knight did a nightclub act, they'd call it Doris and Evelyn. <laughs> <laughs> That's how bad their judgment is, you know? Uh, and, uh, of course, Tallulah would start laughing And uh, while we were on the air. She says, I just got that, darling, you know? <laughs> of course, you're referring to uh, Tallulah Bankhead and uh, The Big Show, which came on in 1950, and I guess was radio's last big effort to compete with television. Yeah, but... To the big show that we did with them, um, we had a lot of big guest stars on the show. I just
4: read this uh, book by Groucho Marx, the Groucho Letters, and uh, the Living Aces scattered throughout the whole book. Yeah, it uh, was one section well, especially where you were corresponding practically uh, every year almost.
6: <laughs> yeah, well, every year about, <laughs> about the right, either, uh, either, He'll write every week. But the letters I wrote Groucho, I don't even remember what they were, but he so told me what a fool I was not to have saved my letters. They gave him thousands of dollars. Finally, I got kind of mad. I said, listen, Groucho, I said, if you think that book of letters that you got from your friends makes you a man of letters, you're sadly mistaken. I said, uh, "I read your book that you did write right ahead of this, and I thought the writing was rather pedestrian. He said, "What does that mean?" I said, "It means you should have gotten run over by a car." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he disappeared for the rest of the time he was here. Then he finally wrote me a letter from the coast saying he forgave me.
4: Was he ever on the big show a Grouse show? Oh yeah,, yes, yes
6: sure. my friend. He would make trouble there, he want. One day uh, we came to the coast where we were going to do this show, and he said he didn't want to go on it anymore. If he went on it, he only wanted two or three lines, because that show never paid any big money it, for what they uh, They worked for practically coolie labor, like 2,500 a week. It was, it was a prestige <laughs> show, you know? It really began, people wanted to get on it, because there was only one day's rehearsal, and the next day you did it. You know, that was the golden, that's what I talk about, the golden days of radio. The rest I it, you know, we used to think it was pretty rugged, writing. And he'd make uh, trouble for him. Once he said he only wanted two or three jokes, I said, okay. And I gave him those three jokes. And then he came home from rehearsal that day. I was stopping with him. He told me make sure I stop with him. He says, I'm not going to go on that show. He just gave me three jokes. I said, that's all you said you wanted. I said, you're being a querulous old man now. (laughs) But uh, radio uh, was much easier to write uh, than uh, television. And uh, as a matter of fact, you held off going into television to do the big uh, show, didn't that's you? That's right. I, I had other offers to do television shows. I said, no, this sounds like something I want to do. I'd never met Miss Bankhead, but I knew the legend that she was, and she was. She brought us that. and it was uh, A writer looks for something like that. He's got something there he can spark with.
9: Ladies and gentlemen, you're about to be entertained by some of the biggest names in show business. For the next hour and 30 minutes, this program will present in person such bright stars as Fred Allen, Mindy Carson,
1: Jimmy Durrani, (laughs) Jose Ferrer,
9: Portland Hoffa, Frankie Lane, Paul Lucas, Ethel Merman, Russell Knife, Danny Thomas, Meredith Wilson, and my name, darling, is Tallulah Bankhead. (laughs)
2: Broadcasting Company presents The Big Show. America,
5: the of America, We're to your of stars.
2: The Big Show, 90 minutes with the most scintillating personalities in the entertainment world. Brought to you this Sunday and every Sunday at the same time as the Sunday feature of Five Show Festivals. NBC's star-studded five-night-a-week program extravaganza. Tonight's big show is presenting such top-flight stars as Fred Allen, Mindy Carson, Jimmy Durante, Jose Pereira Portland Hopper, Frankie Lane, Ethel Merman, Paul Lucas, Russell Knight, Danny Thomas, and Meredith Wilson. And here is your hostess, the glamorous, unpredictable Tallulah Bankhead.
5: <laughs>
0: How would a situation begin to develop? Let's say, uh, you,
6: you, when would you start work on the big show? Assuming line-up. that you have the lineup of yeah, guests. Yeah, they give us the people. Now do we right. got to think of dialogue that go with it. You see, now you ha- all you can do on that show, you have a star like, let's we'll say, Marlena Diedrich. Well, I know that Tulu and Marlena are not going to discuss the world problems or world situations. So they got you got to figure something to talk about. But Marlena is probably gowns, you know the gown she wears and and they do bitter uh, dialogue between them or the first show I wrote for was Ethel Merman she uh, she came on the show the night Call Me Madam opened in New York and she was to sing the whole score of Call Me Madam along with Paul Lucas and Russell Knight now Ethel brought the house down which I knew she would so I have to do this line thank you Ethel and better luck next time (laughs) (laughs) and then she says You've had about uh, 30 shows that have run two years each on Broadway. I bet I you've been two
9: in years. about 30 musicals that have run at least two years.
10: <laughs> well, I don't know the exact number, dear, but I'll look it up in my bank book. <laughs>
9: <laughs> uh, yes, dear. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and Paul Darling, finding Ethel in a musical, well, that's no novelty. But how did you, a dramatic actor, decide to do a Broadway musical?
2: Well, Tallulah, it's a long story. Yeah, well, that's very you interesting, see, darling.
9: You was... uh, see, <laughs> I suppose you must be bothered by hundreds of friends calling up a ticket for your shows. So, of course, I wouldn't dream of bothering you about the two that I've been trying to get. A man,
2: a man stopped me on the street in Hollywood one day. Oh, it's
10: no bother at all. I happen to have two tickets with me, but they're way back in the fourth row, and knowing
9: your eyes... I'll take them. <laughs> uh, oh, by the way, are you still charging the same brokerage fee you charge for wow. Annie Gettedo? <laughs> And this man says
11: to me, Paul, how are you? And I said, oh, I cannot complain. Why,
9: Kalula, dear, I
10: wouldn't dream of charging you, now that you've had to become a radio announcer.
2: (laughs) And this man says to me, Paul, what are you doing
11: now? And I've just been talking to you, and we both laughed, (laughs) except him. Oh, Ethel, darling, darling,
5: for your...
9: For your information, I will have you know that I just finished a long run in Private Lives. And if you remember also, Miss Merman, you came to see me in that with two tickets I gave you.
10: Well, I felt someone should
9: show up, Dee. (laughs) Well, this man and I
2: stood there talking in
1: the street for about an hour, and I, I caught a very bad cold.
9: Ethel, my pet, Private Lives happened to be one of my biggest hits. And there were many others, as you well know, the little foxes, if you please. I've
10: been in a few myself. There was Girl Crazy. Dark Victory. Anything Goes.
9: Skin of our teeth. Panama Hattie, Private Life. Annie, get your gun. Private Life. <laughs> so I went home and took a hot bath. <laughs>
10: Didn't get
5: better.
9: Call
10: me, madam.
9: Pal Joey. You weren't in Pal Joey. No, but Jean Kelly, who happened to be one of my very best friends, was in it, and she gave me two tickets. <laughs> he got you
10: tickets. So
9: I finally decided I'd better go and see my doctor. And
10: besides, Galoo, Pal Joey happens to be a musical, something you've never been in, my dear. Well, of course
9: I haven't, darling. I'm a legitimate sitter. <laughs> a great dramatic play. My doctor is a specialist in colds.
11: He has them all the time. Great place,
10: huh? Rodney, it was beautiful while it lasted. But now we've come to the parting of the ways. We are through, finished, fini. Choice of one.
5: Musicals.
9: Musicals <laughs> indeed. Huh. I got rid <laughs> I got rhythm.
2: And my doctor cured me.
9: I got rhythm, I got
5: rhythm.
2: Who can ask for anything more? (laughs) Well, you
7: did that
6: show at a considerable sacrifice
0: financially. You wanted that show. That's
6: right. I wanted it because it entailed some good writing. You know, I like to write uh, mostly for women, I suppose. But I write uh, for men, too. You know, it's the dialogue that I know Tallulah would want to do.
11: It ain't Wally Parker, kiddies. Bert
5: Allen!
9: On out here. What are you doing in
11: that orchestra? Well, NBC uh, uh, you still being convulsed? A yes, darling. <laughs> well, NBC NBC has tried me on radio and they've tried me on television. Now while they're waiting for a new medium to come along... <laughs> They're trying me on this special assignment with my clarinet, sort of freelancing. uh, Uh, I
9: see, darling. Now, what? Special assignment?
11: Well, first, the announcer, Ed Hurley, he has to ad-lib something about... This
2: portion of the program was brought to you by RCA Victor, world leader in radio, first in recorded music, first in television, and by the Whitehall Pharmacal Company, makers of Anison, colonos, bisadol, and other fine drug products. And then I'm supposed to play...
11: chimes chimes—the first time you ever had a half a tone chimes in the history. <laughs> and then, then I am supposed to say, "This is NBC, the National Broadcasting Company."
9: Fred, my darling, oh. you fool!
3: Oh, yeah. It's so
9: nice to have you back on radio i've missed
11: you oh so you are the one
9: <laughs>
11: according to hooper you are the one
9: no darling we've all missed you why don't you come back fred well i'll tell you
11: darling i uh, <laughs> i have been dabbling in something which for the want of a better name we shall call television please darling people are eating <laughs> I'm sorry. Say, you didn't by any chance happen to see me on my first television show, did you?
9: No, I didn't, Fred.
11: Uh, oh, you weren't home?
9: Oh, oh yes, I was home, darling.
11: Oh, no set, darling? No guts, darling. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know television's a new medium, and I have discovered why they call it a medium. Because nothing is
9: well done. Oh, very little. <laughs> <good. laughs> Darling, I think you're so funny. So you are the one. (laughs) No, Fred, no, uh, seriously speaking, darling. Well, as if we haven't been, what else? Well, no, 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 why did you leave radio? Well,
11: I'll tell you, uh, Tallulah, they wanted me to do one of those programs where you call up people on the telephone and ask them questions and give them prizes, you see, and that's why I quit and went into television. Do you mean? Yes, it was a choice between the medium and the telephone. (laughs)
4: It was a different kind of dialogue, because in Easy Aces uh, it was, was kind a of mild, a, a loving thing. Um, yeah, paper. a loving thing, but clearly it, yeah, it, it, it
6: was biting, and it was you know. cynicism, and it was sarcasm, you know. and it was uh, satire, different. irony, yes. you know. And it was fun writing it, and everybody, now, for instance, uh, we always tried to find something that Lula would say. She wouldn't talk, she could talk to Ginger Rogers about her gown, too, you see, but... Uh, we always try to find so- something about the star that Lulu could talk about that she couldn't talk to anybody else.
9: Each week there will be comedy, drama, music all performed by the biggest stars we can find. Of course, darlings, now and then a clinker may sneak in, but we're going to
1: try... Just a minute, just a minute. <laughs> I heard that last remark and I resembled it. Jimmy ready.
9: Jimmy Don't, Uh,
1: darling, me. I heard you call me a clinker. (laughs) Uh, Now, Jimmy, I did no such thing. I heard what you said, clinker.
9: S-T-I-N... No, Jimmy, no. You know I've never accused you of being a clinker. I insisted you be on the show. Oh, you had to insist, huh? No, no, no. I even wrote them a letter recommending you. I said, gentlemen, I have known Jimmy Durante for great many years. And I have always found him to be five feet, eight inches tall. Five feet, nine inches. I now wear my hair in a knuck sweep. <laughs> no, I, I, I wouldn't settle for anybody but you. Because I've always been your greatest admirer.
1: Well, that makes it anonymous. Because... <laughs> because for years I've admired you from afar.
9: With that nose, darling, how else? <laughs> Chaloux. That's a fight, how you do? Goodbye. Oh, no, Jimmy, Jimmy, come back. After all, I went through to get you on this
1: program. You mean it was because of my beauty and charm? No, darling. My were smile? No, darling. My swooning voice?
9: No, darling.
1: Please, I'm running out of reasons. <laughs> just, just a minute. Just a minute. Hold the show. Stop that dialogue.
9: James you ranty. what's the matter now?
1: What's the matter, she says. I'm sitting in my dressing room in front of my mirror plucking my eyebrows, putting on my makeup, Max Factor Ingenue number two. (laughs) When I look in the mirror and the fella in the mirror ain't doing the same thing as I'm doing.
9: Well, who was it?
1: I don't know, but there he is standing out there now.
9: Oh, Jimmy, that Danny Thomas. (laughs) Annie, darling.
1: Just a minute, you. You mean me? Yeah, you. I want to ask you a question. Answer yes or no. Where did you get that nose? I may ask you the same question. Where did you get your nose? I had this nose for years. Well, I've had my nose for years. Oh, now,
9: please, darling. Stay darling. out
1: of this no nose. <laughs> this is a catastrophe. There's only room on this program for one schnazola. Either he takes his nose and goes, all right, take my nose and go. Goodbye, Jimmy, darling. <laughs> this is
2: sabotage. <laughs> okay,
1: I'm going, and after the show, I'll be waiting outside for you and your nose. Yeah, what are you going to do about my nose? I'll cross that bridge when I come to it.
6: <laughs> I would always have uh, one or two lines ready, so when the writers came in, I say, "This is the way we're going on this. We need about three minutes here," and, and uh, that's the way we do work. Or they would think of something. You know, I was the typist. I sat here and typed. Would like you just the feed lines
2: back and, and forth? Well, yeah,
6: just, uh, I call that conference writing. And That's if you're, if you add it long enough, you can hear the good lines. And you just, you know, sometimes a writer turns it off when you don't use one of his pet lines. You know, you don't hear from him the rest <laughs> of the day, you know, he gets <laughs> sulks.
4: Well, Dick, we have an excerpt uh, with Bob Hope uh, that you wrote for him, I presume. Uh, Mr. No, Lace. I never wrote for him. Never oh, wrote for Bob? Yes, uh, he well, and, uh, we wrote
6: some stuff for him there. Funny thing about it is, when he came on the show once, uh, we were all kind of uh, pleased that he came on. Although I had known him for years, I didn't, I didn't see him. But the night before the show, two writers, came, two men, walked in. They said they wanted to see the script. I said, "Who are you?" They said, "Bob Hope's writers." So I handed them the script, and they walked on. And the next day, I was listening to it, and Perry Como was uh, was a guest on the show, and he had just finished singing. And Bob Hope, she introduced Bob, and then Bob said. Barry Cuomo has a voice like the mating call of a mashed potato. So I said to the producer, what does that mean? He says, I don't know. I said, well, take it out. I said, I don't think it. He says, that's the only joke he wanted to put in. I let all your stuff stay. Don't argue. I said, but it won't get anything. Got the biggest laugh on it.
9: <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I want to introduce at this time a man who's been in show business
1: 40 years. 40 years. Don't tell me Crosby's on this show. Bob
5: Hope.
9: Take charge now. Move over, darling. (laughs) Robert, you weren't here before, but everyone on the big show has agreed to appear in alphabetical order. Oh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Bob Aronson, AA. (laughs) Hope, leave this stage until I call for you.
1: Don't you lower your voice to me. (laughs) I knew you when you were Lewis Calhern.
9: <laughs> darling, why don't you hit the road backstage?
1: Not me. One more haircut and I look like Peter Lynn Hayes. <laughs> I look like Mary Healy as it is.
9: Well, now look, we have a show to do here, darling, and if we don't get it along, we'll have every vice president of the place on our necks. Hoop-de-doo, hoop-de-doo. No, Perry, not yet. What was that? It sounded like the mating call of a mashed potato. What was it? Now look, Bob, darling. Why don't you just sit here and watch the show until it's your turn? Here's a script, darling. I'll have somebody read it to you. (laughs) Watch this show? No, thanks. I'll be back
1: later. I'm going across the street and watch the original. The original of what? Betty Davis and All About Eve.
6: Do you miss radio? Oh, sure. It was it was so nice. You know, I used to think it a drag. You know, you got to get up there again this week, this day, and tomorrow, and the day after. And we had, we had to work when you worked for this advertising agency. You had no there were no vacations. There was fifty two weeks a year. We wrote ourselves out of the script several times so we could get away for three or four weeks. And while we were gone, our rating went up. And I called a guy, <laughs> and asked him if we—he said, "No, the shows are just not what they were." I had another guy writing them, you know, and stuff. And what are you doing currently? Currently, I'm uh, writing pieces for the Saturday Review, and that's the best writing I think I've done. There's more satisfaction in it, you know. And you get nice mail. You get—I get mail that starts Dear Communist too, but I get the other kind, and it's it's nice. And it's—and uh, I'm writing another book and. Uh, I have a play in mind. As a matter of fact, some big producer or Broadway producer lives at our house. That big shot, and uh, he introduced himself to me in the elevator the other day, and he says, I hear you have a play in mind. I said, yes, I have. He says, "Uh, I'd like to see it. I said, I'll send my mind down to you Saturday. You're going to be there, you know. (laughs)
5: He
6: doesn't speak to me anymore. Our
0: thanks to Goodman Ace for sharing his memories of the golden age of radio with us tonight. And to Ed Corcoran for bringing those memories so vividly to life with his collection of old-time radio shows. sharing his memories of the golden age of radio with us tonight. And to Ed Corcoran for bringing those memories so vividly to life with his collection of old-time radio shows. Recording and technical supervision by Bob Shurego. The program was produced and edited by Brian Hartman. This is Dick Bertel. Mexico
2: service stations
1: and dealers in all 48 states present for your entertainment Eddie Duchin and his music. Graham McNamee. And
12: Edwin, the fire chief. <laughs> Hi, everybody. I'm Long Zhu, and welcome to the recorded portion of the show. Let me share a prayer for the evening, and we'll get into the interview. Dear Lord, thank you so much for Bill and Kim, if they guide us through. Uh, this wonderful era of broadcasting. Bless all the listeners. Help those who are going to personal problems, Lord. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. What's this? Here we go. Hi, everybody. I'm Walden Hughes, and I have a gentleman who's written uh, several books on Hollywood. E.J. Fleming, welcome to Yesterday USA.
7: Hi, Walden. Thanks for having me.
12: How and where do you decide to get, become an author?
7: You know, I was growing up in Boston. I was always interested in the old movies from the 20s and 30s. And I just kind of got interested in the silent films. And uh, as I got older, I did more reading and more research. And it's just kind of a, a hobby that's turned into a vocation.
12: let talk about, uh, I think, the book. That Everything Goes Right to to come out in May on Kill Landis. Correct. Right. How in the world did you choose her as a topic?
7: Well, when I first started researching Hollywood topics, I kind of circled in on where things happened. It was always interesting to me where stuff happened. And I started visiting sites um, in and around Hollywood and Beverly Hills, movie-related sites where people lived and people died, and that evolved into a book that was published about four years ago called Hollywood Death and Scandal Sites, which was a list of almost 600 sites of where people died and where things happened. Um, Very well researched, very detailed.
12: Kel Landis was? Um... Just for the audience, I think she was only about, what, 28, if I recall, when she died. 29. 29, and about, what, 1948 or so, right? Correct. How in the world did she get into uh, show business?
7: Well, Carol was an interesting character. area, And when Carol was 13 or 14, she left home um, and moved to San Francisco. And in San Francisco, she's a very talented singer. She started singing in clubs and fronting orchestras and ended up at the age of f- 14 or 15 fronting the Carla Ravaza Orchestra, which was a very popular traveling orchestra at the time stayed there about a year and a half and uh, then on her own at about 16 or 16 and a half moved to L.A. and started looking for work in the movies
12: Who was the studio she wound up uh, with?
7: Well, she ended up working for Daryl Zanuck at 20th Century Fox Um, She originally was hired by Busby Berkeley He was the first person to give her movie work
12: Ended up uh, at, with Vanek at Fox. And uh, w- did her movie career take off quite uh, right away? I know she was starting to do some radio, like uh, Screen Guild, theater, uh, Screen uh, Guild, and stuff like that in the early '40s. Well, it, she
7: actually started working in the '30s hmm. with small roles.
12: What was her really big break that guy really noticed in the movies?
7: Well, Carol really, that was one of the interesting things about Carol. When she went to work for Daryl Zanuck, she had done uh, maybe 20 films between 1937 and 1939. Um, her first big role was in a film called One Million B.C., which was done in 1940. She had a starring role in that movie. Now, all of her roles from the beginning up till that point had gradually increased from bit parts and extra roles to uh, co-starring roles, um, reasonable roles in smaller movies. But but quite a she was quite a bit higher up the food chain than most actresses that quickly.
12: She she seemed like she really got a lot of favorable publicity with her overseas tours for the troops.
7: Well, that's one of the things about Carol that a lot of people don't know, and, and this really kind of exemplifies what Carol was really like. Um, Carol spent more time traveling and visiting troops during the war than any other actor or actress in Hollywood. She was the first actress or actor to visit... Um, a military base near the front. She was in England in February of 1942, within two months, two and a half months of the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Before we entered the war in Europe, she was in England visiting airmen at air bases in England. Um, The USO did not make their first trip anywhere for almost a year after that. Carol spent three months, almost four months, traveling through England and North Africa visiting troops. And then later in 1943, she spent four months traveling through the South Pacific doing the same thing. As the Marines were retaking all the thousands of islands from the Japanese, she was coming in within a couple of months of weeks after they arrived. Most of the island she was on, there were still Japanese troops on, but she did the same thing when she was in England in 1942. She was in North Africa and heard about a group of flyers close to the front that heard that she and her three friends were there and she was told that they couldn't take her there because it was too dangerous. So she literally walked into Dwight Eisenhower's office and told him there are airmen that want to see us. We want to see them make this happen. And he did. He put the four of them in the back of a B-24 and they flew without fighter escort to within three miles of the front in North Africa to visit troops. Every airman Every mechanic, every serviceman that I talked to, and I interviewed probably 50 that met her, all said the same thing. They all said she was wonderful and nice, and she was truly dedicated to that cause before it was fashionable. And she didn't do it for publicity. She didn't do it for personal gain. She did it because she wanted to do it.
12: I think there were two famous stints. Didn't she go with Jack Benny? with that the... Uh... The South the Jack, Pacific tour?
7: Yeah, the Jack Benny tour was the South Pacific tour. Uh, the European tour was with Mitzi Gaynor, Martha Ray, and Kay Francis. That was a tour that she actually put together herself.
12: Now, did, did somebody in that group write a book? Was it Kay Francis that wrote a book about their experiences?
7: No, actually, it was Carol that wrote the book. Ah. It was called Four Jills in Jeep. It was ghostwritten. Okay. But there is enough... Of Carol in the text, that you can tell that she did a lot of the writing just by the style of uh, language used and the stories she told. But she, she wrote that book. Uh, it was written when she came back, and then it was turned into a very successful movie that the four of them starred in.
12: That's right. Do Do we know who was the actual author, or the one that did the ghost uh, the ghost writing? Yes, he was her?
7: yeah she was a kind of a, an unknown studio. Studio writer—it's not anybody that anybody would remember.
12: Okay, and what about the uh, the picture Was there a picture deal that uh, helped her financially? What's the what uh, what you know from the book to the picture, or what that? Sh-
7: no, you know, Carol had a normal studio contract. She was um, until the time when she came back from the war. She was an independent. She was working for herself.
12: Now, that movie came out, what, about 43 or 44, right? Four Girls in a Jeep? Uh, Four Girls in a Jeep came out
7: in...
12: 43. 43. Were there any decent other roles for her until the end of the war? Or were there anything, uh, a decent film for her from 45 to 48?
7: Um... Now, her, her work from 45 to 48 was independence, and it was in, in roles that were not really um, to her talent level. Carol was a supremely talented actress. She worked with Betty Grable in several films. She worked with Rita Hayworth in several films, and she stole the movies from every actress she ever appeared with.
12: Anybody want to get a copy of E.J. Fleming's book on Carolinas, go to McFarland Publication at McFarlanePub.com. And look on the web at Google for any other E.J. Fleming's books if you're interested. Here is Information, Please. <laughs>
0: Wake up, America. Time to stump the experts. Each week at this time, the H.J. Hines Company, makers of the famous 57 varieties, gives you Information Please. A quartet of experts is on hand to answer your questions. Send them to Information Please at 570 Lexington Avenue, New York City. We may edit them a bit, and in case of similarity, you'll have to accept our judgment of who shall be paid. If we use your question, the H.J. Hines Company will send $10 in war stamps plus a set of the 12-volume Britannica Junior Encyclopedia. If we muff the question, you get $57 in war bonds and stamps plus a 24-volume set of the regular Encyclopedia Britannica. All questions remain our property. Information, please, is presented under the supervision of Dan Goldenpaul, And now, our Master of Ceremonies, book reviewer of the New Yorker magazine, Clifton Fadiman. Ladies and gentlemen, impromptu and unrehearsed as ever, Information Please offers tonight a four-star cast consisting of our two regulars, John Kieran of the New York Sun and Franklin P. Adams, along with Richard Maney, eminent theatrical publicist, and that great lady of the American theater, Miss Ethel Barrymore, currently starring in The Corn is Green. We're going to begin with a question from Dorothy M. Roth of Philadelphia. And... Each of the following people had something to say about time, T-I-M-E. What did they have to say about it? Let's get three out of four. What did Ralph Hodgson have to say about time? Ralph Hodgson, H-O-D-G-S-O-N. Any ideas? This is one of those things you just can't make up. You either know or you don't know. Uh, no luck, eh? No luck. Uh, you know who Ralph Hudson was. Yeah. Miss Barrymore, who yeah, was he? he's
8: a poet.
0: Yes, an English poet.
8: I only know one poem
0: of his. Well, what one is that? The Ball. Uh, I'm sorry, we don't have that one. We have the other one. Time, you old gypsy man, will you oh, not yes. stay? Mm-hmm. Put up your caravan just for one day. It's a famous mm-hmm. poem by Ralph Hudson, but just not quite famous enough. That's one wrong. What did Henry Wadsworth Longfellow say about time? He said something
13: about time, Mr. Kieran. And departing, leave behind us footprints on the sands <laughs> of time. That's a very
0: good one. I hadn't thought of that. There's another one about, another phrase about time. Art is long, and what is time? Time is fleeting. Time is fleeting, yes, yes, Mr. Adams. That's mm-hmm. quite right. Uh, Rudy Vallee uh, had something to say about time, Your too.
8: time and my time, or something. <laughs> or something
0: like that, yes. My time is your time. Well, my time is your theme time.
8: Theme song.
0: That's right. The <laughs> theme song of Rudy Valley, yes. It's difficult to know uh, which made the other famous. And uh, Cicero had something to say about time. Cicero? Mr. Adams? O tempera o mores. Hey, that's perfect. Perfect. <laughs> well, Where'd you pick up that beautiful Roman? <laughs> I'm good at that. They are good. And, and what, is it, what does it mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ozy times, ozy customs. Ozy times, the <laughs> O-Z customs. And uh, under what circumstances did Cicero use the phrase? Uh, Mr. Maney? He was uh, laying out oh. Catiline, I believe. Yes, as he was doing most of the time. And then, of course, there's Shakespeare's famous time. You know that one, Mr. Kieran? Oh, he yeah, had so many about well, you. Well, I know. was thinking of the bank where the wild thyme grows. <laughs> right. well, how about this one from Ken West of Eatonton, New Jersey? Identify the active manager in baseball who did the following things. There are going to be three of them. One who won pennants in both leagues. An active manager who won pennants in both leagues, Mr. Meaney. Joe McCarthy. Joe McCarthy. Uh, Chicago Henry Cubs Mann. and the, and the uh, New York Yankees. Yes, won several pennants for the Yankees. Any number? No, Not yeah. any number, but a reasonable number. How about this one? An active manager who spent all his playing career... Or almost all of it in the other league. That is the one he is not with now, uh, Mr. Adams. Well, Gabby Harton did for one. Gabby Hart? I don't know about that. Is that right, Mr. Kieran? No, I shouldn't say so. Uh, Mr. Meany. Bucky Harris. Bucky Harris. Bucky Harris. Uh, now with whom? Philadelphia National. Yes, and uh, most of his time was spent with whom? Washington and Detroit. Yeah, Washington and, yeah, uh, Washington uh, and, and Boston. Boston. Washington and All Boston. three. All three. Okay. Now, how about an active manager who won pennants in three different cities of the same league? Won pennants in three different cities of the same league? Mr. Meaney. I think it's McCackney. I guess it would be. Name the, name the teams. St. Louis. That's one. Pets by That's another. Cincinnati. That's right. Is exactly. that right, Miss Barrymore? Sure. Oh, you knew all along. Yeah. Well, why didn't you tell us? He missed one city, though. He missed in Boston. Alas. Alas, alas!
8: Win
0: the alas, poor McKechnie. How about this one from Herbert Buckman of Cleveland, Ohio? It's about candles. Where would you be if you saw the candles referred to in the following quotations? Let's get two out of three. Now, the first one is, "How far that little candle throws his beams." Now, if you heard that, where would you, where would you be in the, on the earth's surface, Mr. Curran?
13: You would be in about the fourth act of the Merchant of Venice. You'll uh, in the fifth
0: act. That's next door it to the it the
13: fifth? All right. The fifth, it's when Portia is returning home to uh, uh, her place. Belmont. Belmont. Belmont, yes. That's Ms. right. Barrymore reminds us. And Miss Barrymore, where is Belmont? Near what
0: uh, larger town? Venice. Venice, yes. Belmont, uh, near Venice, in the in the merchant of uh, Venice. How about this one? Through the sycamores, the candle lights are gleaming. Uh, where would you be, Mr. Adams? On the banks of the Wabash, far away. <laughs> I'm almost sorry I asked you. And who, uh, who wrote the, the words, Mr. Adams? Uh, Paul Dresser wrote
4: the words, and uh, uh, Theodore Dreiser is supposed to have written the first
0: verse. Yes. Uh, did he write that one, From the Fields There Come, the Breath of New Mown Hay, and so forth? It's, I mean, those were very good words. They're, that's they're a question. Written. I doubt it. Well, they're very good words anyway, whoever wrote them. And the final candle is, Out,
13: Out, Brief Candle. Uh, where would you be if you heard that, Mr. Kieran? The, you would be, well, I won't give you the act, but it's toward the end of, of the play of Macbeth, where he says, Out, Out, Brief Candle, life is but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard mm-hmm. no more.
0: You think he's missed his vocation, Mr. <laughs> Brown? <Barrymore? laughs>
13: he's not bad. Yes. Yeah. For an exports
0: expert, I mean. <laughs> and uh, actually, Mr. Kieran, uh, what, where would you be? What town and country would you be in if you heard of It
13: would be at his castle where yeah, he where is being it? attacked. Uh, Dunsman. Yes, Dunsman in Scotland. Scotland. In Scotland. <laughs> Scotland. Yes. quite right.
0: All right. Gladys Carrington of Newman, Illinois, sends in a uh, question about limericks. I'm going to give you the first four lines of three limericks, which are supposed to be reasonably well known. I'm going to ask you to give me the fifth, or topper. There was an old man who said, Hush, I perceive a young bird in this bush. When they said, Is it small? He replied, Not at all. How does it go on? It's four times the size of the bush. That's right, Miss Barrymore. <laughs> <it's> exactly right. <laughs> it is four times as big as the bush. Oh, you wasted a good deal of time during your career learning these things, Miss <laughs>
5: Barrymore.
0: Try this one. The Reverend Henry Ward Beecher called a hen a most elegant creature. The hen, pleased with that, laid two eggs in his hat. (coughs) Mr. Adams. And thus did the Henry Ward Beecher. Very good. (laughs) And That's to the Henry Ward Beecher. Mr. Maine, did that come back to you? Not at all. You don't remember heard it at all? <laughs> Never heard of
13: it. Never heard of it at all.
0: Uh, uh, you know something about Henry Ward Beecher, don't you? I must have been <laughs> mixed up with the wrong Beechers. <laughs> <laughs>
5: well,
0: there are no wrong Beechers. They were always right. Here's one. There was an old party of lime who married three wives at one time. When asked, why the third? He replied, one's absurd. What's the topper? Ah, and bigamy, sir, is a crime. Right, Hmm. right, yes, but I have to mark that one wrong. Still, that sends us on to number five from Holger Ritter of Warren, Ohio. Here is a question about famous boasters. Tell me what happened to them. The first boasted, I'll grind his bones to make my bread. Mr. Kieran.
13: Uh, he fell down and broke his neck, I think, uh, t- chasing Jack down the beanstalk. Yes, <laughs> that was the one. Uh, what, what is the, uh, ho- five, four, firm, I smell the blood of an Englishman, be he alive or be he dead, I'll grind his bones Boom. to make my... Bone. Very good, yes.
0: Nothing like the, the, uh, <laughs> amount of classical illusion that you have, Mr. Kiernan. <laughs> How about this? Here's another boast. I am looking forward to dictating peace to the United States in the White House at Washington, Miss Barrymore.
8: Admiral Yamamoto, luckily dead.
0: Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, he was dead. Uh, he recently dead, yes. Yamamoto killed, according to the Japs, Miss Barrymore, under what circumstances?
8: Well, they said he was killed in the plane, but I, I don't think we know.
0: Well, we, we no. know probably that they were lying. Yes. He was not killed in air combat. He was the Japanese... Number one, Admiral. He was was full of Bushido. (laughs) Pardon
5: me?
0: (laughs) What would you you say, Mr. Beatty? I'd say he was full of Bushido. Full of Bushido. (laughs) 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 Here's another boast. So far, these boasts just haven't come to a very good end. Uh, What happened to this one? This place in the sun shall remain our undisputed possession. Who said that? Under what circumstances? What happened to the boast? This place in the sun shall remain our undisputed possession. Well, the man who said that, Mr. Adams? Uh, sounded like uh, little Kaiser Kaiser William. Yes, probably. you sound very affectionate. Did he? <laughs> uh, uh, yes, he did say that. Kaiser Bill said that in 1901, after the Germans had acquired Kiao Chow in China. Oh, yeah. And what happened to Kaiser Bill? Mr. Adams, what was his latter end?
4: Uh, He was a woodchopper at dawn. (laughs) Yes,
0: he he ended his days woodchopping, not any longer as an emperor. He, of course, uh, abdicated at the end of the last war. And perhaps a a very good precedent. Well, you know, traditions play a big part in our lives. And our Heinz reporter, Ben Grauer, has a word on a very interesting one. If you have ever visited the Heinz plant in Pittsburgh, you've probably noticed a little old-fashioned two-story brick house. Looks sort of strange there with its neat yard and its crisp curtains in the midst of busy factory and office buildings. Nobody lives there now, but it's a home nevertheless, the home of a tradition, the little house where Hines began. Originally, it stood on a tree-shaded street in Sharpsburg, about five miles from Pittsburgh, but not so many years ago it was brought down to Pittsburgh and placed right in the heart of the Heinz buildings. The Heinz people always think a lot of that little house, not just for the sake of sentiment, but because it's a symbol of what Heinz stands for. It's just the kind of house where you'd expect to meet up with good cooking. You'd expect to find rich soup simmering on the back of the range, a bulging jelly bag gripping its fruity juices, and at pickling time, the smell of bubbling hot vinegar, sweetness and spice coming at you like clouds of cozy incense. Well, I can't think how better to tell you about our way of doing things and to say that Hines has been working for 74 years in the conscientious preparation of foods. Foods that would be at home in the little house where Hines began. Thank you, Mr. Grower. Mr. Grower, you're killing Adams. He's gnawing his fingers. <laughs> <laughs> Try this one. John Winter of Bayside, Long Island, sends this in. For what purpose did the following forces join hands? These are two men who got together uh, for some particular purpose. What was the purpose? The first set of men, Francis Wilson and Frank Gilmore, got together for what, person? B- what purpose, Miss Barrymore?
8: Found Actors' Equity.
0: The formation of Actors' Equity, when was that, Miss Barrymore?
8: Oh, I never know any dates. Uh, Mr. Maney, 1920, I think. Oh, 19-
0: no. 1913, I think.
8: Long before 1920. Yes, yes no, I think it was 1913.
0: <laughs> yes. Uh, and <laughs> a very good... And a very good uh, idea, it turned out to be, Miss Barrymore, didn't it? How about this one? Stephen F. Austin and Samuel Houston got together for what purpose, Mr. Curran? To find the Republic of Texas. Yes, a struggle for Texan independence against Mexico. How about Jack Dempsey and Billy Kahn? At what uh, point in their careers did they collaborate in any way? Uh, Mr. Meaney. They collaborated in a considerable scuffle, at a ballpark in New York, a prize fund. Well, that wasn't exactly a collaboration, would you, would yeah. you say? <laughs>
5: uh,
0: I was thinking... collaboration collaboration on Khan's part. Uh, I, I, there was a case where they actually did join hands. Uh, Miss Barrymore? I no, I don't know.
8: Miss Dermaney? I don't know, don't know what it is, at all. And
0: they were both in uniform. Well, no, now, that no. might be one. But I was thinking of the, of the time when Dempsey was Khan's second in his fight against Joe Lewis. Wasn't, didn't, wasn't that
13: true? I didn't if he was. I didn't notice him. I mean, I didn't notice Dempsey there. I saw a lot of Conn. <laughs> might be. I've I, I I believe he was his second. Maybe. However, we
0: got two out of three on that. Try this. Ethel Higgins of New Haven sends this one in. What was the destination of a person who traveled the road that was a ribbon of moonlight over the Purple Moor. What was the destination of that, purpo- of that person, Mr. Kieran?
13: That destination was a, a window in an inn yard. He tapped on the window, and who should be waiting there but Bess, the landlord's daughter, <laughs> weaving a bright red love knot into her dark something hair. I wish we had time for you to tell us the rest <laughs> of the story,
0: but we got 90% of it. Uh, did that poem come back to you, Mr Barrymore? Remember no. it now? Try this one. What was the destination of a person who travelled the road that was like an arrowy Alpine river? That is a tough one. The road that was like an arrowy Alpine river. Well, that is tough. It's from a Mr. Adams. No, no,
14: that wouldn't be uh,
0: Kubla Khan. No, no. That's kind of close. Well, you, uh, <laughs> you uh, couldn't be further away. It was Alf, the Sacred River. Uh, yes, that's Alf, but this is Alpine. An <laughs> H uh, makes all the difference. Here, it's from Sheridan's Ride, which the kids learn in school, remember, by Thomas Buchanan Reed, under his spurning feet the road like an arrowy Alpine River flowed, and the destination was Cedar Creek. Uh, probably everybody under 14 listening to us knows <laughs> that, though they shouldn't be up so late. How about this one? What was the destination of a person who traveled the road that was the steep and thorny way? Mr. Kieran.
13: Why, uh, his destination uh, in the play was Paris. He was uh, going... uh, No, the destination, the one who was to tread the steep and thorny path was uh, heaven. Yes.
0: But... uh, Well, you might very easily get them
13: mixed up. (laughs) But the one who who told that uh, himself, the primrose path of dalliance... Trod. That's right, yes. That's Laertes giving uh, very good advice to his sister Ophelia in Hamlet.
0: Perfect, perfect oh. answer. Very good. Uh, David Weiss of McKeesport, Virginia, asks this one about famous detectives of fiction. Not famous detectives, but any detectives of fiction. What important facts do detectives learn from the following clues? Now, the first set of clues might be the size and type and distance apart of a man's footprints, when they determine those facts, what can they tell about the man? They can tell Ms. the Barrymore. height. Pardon? The height. The height. Yes. Mm. And could they tell anything else, perhaps, from uh, the distance and the? Uh,
8: well, I think they could tell the height and the and vaguely the weight. The size they
0: might tell man. vaguely the weight. Yes, uh, Mr. Meany. They might tell if he was sober. <laughs> yes. That's right. They might tell something about any peculiarities of his stride, whether he were lame. Perhaps. Yes or whether, as Mr. Maney, uh, drawing from his own (laughs) experience, said whether he was sober. (laughs) Uh, What important facts do detectives learn from the report of the medical examiner, assuming that the cause of death is obvious? Then what do they learn from uh, the medical examiner's report?
13: Mr. Kieran? Well, they learn uh, whether it was a deed of violence or... or not, or poison, or the... Well, assuming, a,
0: assuming that the cause of death is obvious, what else do they learn?
13: From the report? Uh, uh, from the medical examiner's report, Mr. Adams. I don't
0: know. But, uh, approximately the time of death. That's right, yes. Oh, that's yeah. a very important clue, in a great many detectives. Isn't, isn't that true, Ms. Barrymore? Yes, yeah, of course About the is. time yeah. it was committed, whether 10 or 12 it. hours ago, mm. or whatever. Now, suppose uh, a man has a perfect and prompt alibi. What do they learn from that?
13: He's guilty. Well, it's not as easy as all that. uh, Not necessarily that he's guilty. No. Well, but that he has prepared an alibi, which is suspicious. Yes. That's right. That's what I meant.
0: He may have some, as Miss Barrymore Well, that's what I meant. He might have some (laughs) knowledge of the crime. That's right. Uh, Lillian Farmer of Birmingham, Alabama, sends this one in. I'm going to ask you to identify for us these heroines of the theater, each of whom uh, does some. Exposing of someone else in the, in the play. The first case, the first woman exposes the man she loves as a card cheat. Exposes the man she loves as a card cheat. Who is that? Oh. Miss Barrymore, I can hear you mentally. Well, uh, can you think uh, of one?
8: Declasse, do you
0: think? Yes, yes. Understand? yes. Apparently uh, mm, none of pack. us can forget Victoria. Oh, were, were you good in that? <laughs> <laughs> How about this one? Uh, one who exposes herself as a thief and marries the man who trapped her. That's the plot oh, of the yeah. play. Miss Barrymore, does that come back to you? Oh, uh, my. Dick? I
8: know
0: it's so Miss Oh, my, my, my. Yes. Why, Miss Barrymore... Oh, I there.
8: know, it's, it's awful. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's in the
0: last of Mrs. Cheney, isn't it? Yes, that's And right. Mrs. Cheney is the one who uh, exposes herself as a thief. How about one who exposes herself as a forger and leaves her ungrateful husband? ...exposes herself as a forger, Mr... That's
13: one of uh, Ibsen's plays, it is The indeed. Hedda Gabler.
0: Oh, gee whiz, is mm. the wrong oh, one? Oh, wait a minute. No,
13: The Doll's House.
0: Yeah. The should doll's I count house. you
13: right or should I count you oh, wrong? Oh, I, I know the play. Sure. Really, don't count me wrong on <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh A Doll's House is right. And now our 57 Varieties reporter, Ben Grauer... ...is about to delve into the mysteries of that elusive thing called flavor... If the secret of Heinz's success to be stated in a word, that word would be flavor. Now, flavor, of course, is a subtle thing. You can dine in a palace on plates of gold and miss it. You can eat in some out-of-the-way lunchroom and find it, for it all depends on who's in the kitchen. Now, if you were to peep into the Heinz kitchens, you'd discover many reasons for Heinz flavor, but this above all, Heinz chefs are masters of that fine, creative art of cooking and they have the best ingredients in the world at their command. Each individual bean, pickle, tomato, clove, grain of wheat, leaf of tarragon, or what you will, is a perfect specimen of its kind, grown in that section of the good earth where prize crops flourish best. This rigid Heinz rule of absolute perfection of the ingredients has not been altered in a single instance these 74 years, and today when flavor is more important than ever, It's well to remember that the 57 varieties are still rich with that genuine homespun goodness that has delighted three generations of appreciative Americans. Thank you, Mr. Grower. Try this one from Arthur Herbert Porter of Seattle. Identify the famous families, there are going to be three of them, let's get two out of three, which had or have these distinguished members. A father and son who were decorated for bravery simultaneously.
13: Mr. Kieran? Recently? Yes. The, uh, general Theodore Roosevelt and his son Quentin Roosevelt were decorated in, uh, in Africa. General Theodore Roosevelt is uh, commanding general of the infantry of a certain division, and his son is field artillery.
0: That's exactly right, Mr. Kieran. Very good. Yes. cited on May 6th, only recently for bravery in North Africa. Now, how about two brothers who won the same prize in successive years? Two brothers, Mr. Meany. Might well be John and Lionel Barrymore. It might well be, but you have to document your case. I'm not sure that it was. Miss Barrymore, can you tell us whether that's true or not? No, I don't think so. Don't think it was. The ones I was thinking of were Carl Van Doren, the famous biographer who won the Pulitzer Prize in and 1939, Mark and Mark Van Doren, uh, Mr. Adams, who won it in 1940, the next year for a book of poetry. I have to call that wrong and get the next one right. Four brothers who ruled simultaneously. We've got to name them. Four brothers, Miss Barrymore? You mean way back? You can go can back I... as far as you
8: wish. Well, uh, the uh, Henry the Third, Charles the Ninth, Francis II, and
0: uh, well, were they were they all brothers? Yes.
8: They were all the sons of Catherine de' Medici. They were yeah. all the Valois. That's you've
0: boys. named you've named three.
8: Yes, I'm trying to think of the last one's name.
0: Maybe it isn't too Wait late for Catherine to produce a. Oh boy. no, I
8: think there are only three.
0: Uh, Mr. Meany? Napoleon Bonaparte, Joseph Bonaparte, Louis Bonaparte. <laughs> that's three. That's, Jerome. that's three. Jerome. No, Jerome. No, that's Jerome. Jerome. Jerome no. is right, no. yes. No. Jerome. We know I think we'll have to count that round, because we should have got the Napoleon answer right off the reel. That will send $57 in war bonds sure and stamps to Mr. Porter. Instead the Senate of the Encyclopedia Britannica, courtesy of the Heinz Company. The four Napoleon brothers, the up-and-coming Napoleon brothers, form the right answer. However, you only got that with an assist from Miss Barrymore, Dick. <laughs> try, try this from Helen Stillman, New York. It's about elopements. Elopements. They, it's a very old-fashioned... They don't do it anymore, do they, Miss Barrymore? People elope anymore? Right down. You hardly ever hear of it. Here's one about elopements. In, in what work of fiction do they occur, or play, or novel, or whatever... In what work does a daughter elope, taking her father's bags of money and jewelry? An idea. Uh, Miss Barrymore.
8: Jessica. Jessica, In The Merchant of
0: Venice. In The Merchant of Venice, yes. And who's the uh, boy she runs away with? Oh, Lorenzo. Lorenzo, and it's Mm -hmm. Shylock that she runs away from, Miss Barrymore, as you say. In what work does a wife elope with a former husband? A repetition compulsion. A wife elope with a former husband. It seems improbable. Uh, it's in Private Lives, Noel Coward's oh, yes. uh, famous comedy. Private Lives. That gives us one wrong. And uh, where do you find a man who makes it a practice to intercept elopers on their way to their destination? This is a play of some years ago. One of the most charming plays that I remember having seen, Mr. Maney. I'm going to make a psychic bed and say lightning. Uh, no, I don't think so. Oh. Uh, I'm not, I, I, I don't believe that would fit. The one I was thinking of was A.A. Milne's The Dover Road. Oh, yes. Yeah. Isn't that right, Ms. Yes, Barrymore? That was A, lovely a charming character hey. there who, who uh, gets people together who want to yeah. go apart and vice versa. Well, that sends $57 in war bonds and stamps to Miss Stillman and a set of The, the Canter. Finally, Mrs. D.M. Philippi of Dayton, Ohio. Where in fiction does a character divert suspicion by doing the following things. Where uh, does she divert suspicion? By shooting herself in the back. Shooting herself in the back. Seems a little unfair.
5: <laughs>
0: who, who uh, remember, the, it's in a detective story, a famous one of some years ago, the Green Murder Case by whom? S. S. Van Dyne. S. Van Dyne, yes, your old friend, Mr. Adams. That's one wrong. Try this. Where does a character divert suspicion by carrying a butterfly net and box while walking on the moors, Mr. Kieran? Uh,
13: that was uh, Sherlock Holmes, I believe, in The Hound of the Baskervilles, isn't it?
0: Yes, it, it's by it's by Sherlock Holmes. It, he isn't the one who who diverts suspicion. Oh no, no, the the uh,
13: the uncle or whatever, the the murderer.
0: Isn't yeah, it? Mr. Stapleton is is the yeah. villain in yeah. that Sherlock Holmes story. That's exactly right, Mr. Kieran. And what? What uh, character diverts suspicion by playing a record of the victim's voice? A very famous, a classical detective story of some years ago. Still one of the best ever written. I bet all four of you have read it. I've read it, I know. It's
13: put it, on the record after the man is dead and somebody comes yes. to the door and here's the man speaking and thereafter swears that the man was yes. alive at that date. That's but perfect, I've, Mr. Kieran. I've forgotten Don't the name well. of the You've book. You've given us
0: everything but the name of the I, book. I can't remember it's the name. It's, it's pathetic. I shall have to award $57 that's to Mrs. Philippine unless we get the name of the book, which is The Murder of Roger, Roger Ackroyd Ach- 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 by, Ach- by oh, Agatha Christie. Dear. sorry, but that sends Mrs. Philippine $57 and that's the Botanical. Uh, Helene Falk of Springdale, Connecticut, asks this one. It's an interesting question about men in whose lives islands played an important part. Identify each of them. This one was born on one island and imprisoned on two others. Uh, Mr. Adams. Napoleon. Napoleon, name the islands, Mr. Maney. What islands were they? Born on Corsica. St. Helena,
13: and Corsica. Yes,
0: right. (laughs) And which one... Which one was buried on two islands which he discovered? That doesn't sound possible, does it? <laughs> buried on two islands which he discovered. Split personality, doubtless. Mr. Akira? Oh, uh... Beering? Bearing. You want to discover bearing, the Bering Sea? Yeah, I think strength?
13: he's buried up there. I, I didn't know that they split him in half and <laughs> buried him on two <laughs> islands. Well, do you want to make, make this up and, and cut Bearing in two? No, I, I two give up
4: islands on. that he discovered. Yeah. Christopher Columbus. That's
0: right. Why didn't you say that before, Adams? <laughs> That's correct. You're so modest, I think. <laughs> uh, yes, Columbus. Uh, his remains were transported, according to his will, to Santo Domingo. But on the cession of Hispaniola to uh, the French, they were removed to the Cathedral of Havana in Cuba. And finally, they were removed to Spain. That's right. His death was one long moving
5: <laughs> How
0: about this one? This writer was born on an island in the North Atlantic and died on an island in the South Pacific. That's going far afield, Mr. Maney. Robert Louis Stevenson. That's quite yeah. right. What were the islands, Mr. Maney? Uh, I'll rest there. I know
8: where
5: Well,
0: what was the island in the South Pacific? That's the important one. Samoa. Samoa. Uh, yes, an island uh, it died in Vile Lima, I think it was, the island of Upolu, on Samoa. Let's see, we did get two out of three on that, so that we do not have to send $57 to... Helene Fork of Springdale, Connecticut. I want to thank you, Miss Barrymore, and Mr. Richard Maney, for your star performances tonight. Now, this evening, the H.J. Hines Company has paid out how much? $171 in war bonds and stamps and three sets of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Next week, the Levant-Kieran-Adams combination will play ball with our distinguished guest, the eminent musical maestro who has been with us a couple of times before and has always done brilliantly, and who has recently won literary laurels with his book, A Mingled Chime, Sir Thomas Beecham. Remember, those who send in questions and answers, that you must include not only the questions, which are easy, but also the correct answers. Otherwise, we'll have to look them up ourselves. Send the questions and correct answers to Information, please, at 570 Lexington Avenue, New York City. And now, Ben Grauer. The H.J. Heinz Company, makers of the 57 varieties, invites you to join us again next Monday night at this same time. During this week and every week, remember to look for the Heinz label on food products, because Heinz quality gives you full value for your money and for every precious ration coupon that you spend. (laughs) This program came to you from New York.
14: Just my luck to be in love.
0: And
7: I'm
6: so confused...